Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you don't mind me asking, what does the bracelet say? Yeah, on the front, it's a medical bracelet. On the back, uh, there's a little bit about the push 50,000 units of heparin, a blood anticoagulant to reduce the coagulation in the blood and perform CPR while cooling with water ice if I'm dead. The idea that being dead is not something that happens immediately. It's something that uh, can be reversed. I've caught Rudy Hoffman at his home in Port Orange, Florida. Rudy sells life insurance, which is fitting in a way, because he plans to live for a long time. We happen to be alive in the generation that may be the last to see involuntary death. Meanwhile, how sad would it be, Omar, if you just missed that boat by maybe a few years, maybe 20, maybe 15, maybe 30? Rudy has a plan for that. It involves a company out of Arizona that, the instant Rudy dies, will begin the process of freezing his body. It's called cryonics. The idea behind cryonics is that we are cooled down immediately upon pronouncement of legal death. You can go a thousand years at liquid nitrogen temperature and there is zero change. So it's a biostasis protocol that sends us to a future technology, but it's not science fiction. It's not quite science nonfiction either. I mean, last summer a worm was thawed after some 46,000 years on ice, but we're not worms. And our track record as a species, religious anecdotes aside, is pretty clear. You die, you stay dead. Even if you did believe in a cryonics-enabled second life, you might have to think twice. It can be pricey. And then I found out that it was not only a real thing, but was affordable through the leverage of life insurance. Life insurance which Rudy sells out of his small Florida home office. It's crowded with metal filing cabinets, presumably filled with policies. Rudy can set you up with a cryonics policy, but for it to pay out, you have to die. Officially. How how many of your clients are currently frozen? Uh, 15. (laughs) Yeah, which is, given the fact that I've put about 1,500 pieces of business in the books. It's actually, this is a a block of business that's probably the best block of business any insurance carrier has ever had. Let's be clear. Rudy is the ice king of this market. He says he secured about 55% of the global share of cryonics life insurance policies. That's at least in part because a lot of his colleagues never really warmed up to the business. They called me a frosted flake and other fun things. Yeah, so you're going to be one of them that are corpse sickles, Rudy. You know that doesn't have any chance of working, right? (laughs) It's worth noting here that Rudy walks the walk. He's got a policy out. He's signed up with a big cryonics company. He's all in on this. Whatever you might think of this whole freezing business, one thing you can't call Rudy is a hypocrite. Do you ever think uh, you might change your mind? Actually, I'm very concerned that I might change my mind. Rudy doesn't mince words here. For him, the option to live a lot longer might be just around the corner. 
Which is why he believes backing out would be like committing suicide. If you like life and we like living now, it's very possible that you'll like life in the future. That's a solid line from a salesman. When a client purchases a policy with Rudy, oh, and it's, it's often a he, a middle-class white he, we'll probably have lots of questions. Some of them might be of the big existential variety, but there are also plenty of boring, practical questions that come up too. Well, how does this life insurance work if you're dead, but then you come back to life? How does that work? Are they going to come looking for their money in the future? You know, I'm a teacher. I'm going to get a pension. Do I just, like, collect on all those years that I was, I was dead? Nick Zorin signed up with Rudy in high school. Now he teaches in a high school. Science department. He's now 20 years into his policy with Rudy. And Nick has almost finished paying for his life insurance, securing what happens to his body when he dies. They pack your head with ice and they start to cool your body down, and they transport you to the facility, which is in Scottsdale, Arizona. So when you freeze something, ice crystals form, and these ice crystals rip apart cells, and they're no longer viable. So they put in this cryoprotectant that is designed to minimize cracking, and you just kind of hang out there waiting for um, future science to get to the point when they can revive you. Is there insurance for the process? Like they're, they're monitoring the whole time for if they start hearing cracks or if the thing breaks down? It's part of the risk. It's part of the risk involved. Why do you want to do this? I would love to see the future. What if we can, instead of living for, you know, 70, 80 years, what if we could live for 200, 300 years? I mean, what if dying isn't something that we have to do? This is Without. I'm Omar Lackad. On today's episode, Death. In the history of human storytelling, probably no single idea has been more closely associated with hubris and tragedy than the desire for immortality. Today, among a gaggle of tech gurus and billionaires, the idea of living for thousands of years is a particularly popular one. Popular enough to fund all kinds of research labs and institutions, all in an effort to stave off death. But how close are we really to massively increasing the length of our lives right now? We'll see scientists duke it out over allegations of snake oil and philosophers trying to imagine the practical end of mortality. And while a lot of this stuff is fascinating and bizarre and probably indicative of some real psychological issues, it's a good starting point to think about maybe the most natural and perhaps false assumption that a lot of folks make about the relationship between aging and death, namely, that one inevitably causes the other. All that, and a foray into the sex lives of fruit flies, all coming up. Stay with us. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done 
felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. When Rudy and Nick eventually freeze themselves, they'll be doing a lot more than just betting on some future miracle cure. They're also going to be sidestepping one of the central human questions. Namely, what the hell is death, really? I had thought death was an outcome of aging, and that for individuals that do age, aging would eventually end in death. But those assumptions are all incorrect, which raised a lot of questions for me. Can we delay aging? Can we stop aging? And if aging and death are not connected in the way that I was previously thinking, then what is death? These are obviously some PhD-level questions. Fortunately, Parveen Sharistani has one of those. I'm an associate professor of biology at California State University, Fullerton. Professor Sharistani's work revolves around aging, which fancy people call senescence. It turns out that if you look at the tree of life, not every species ages. So aging is not universal, and yet death is. Basically, if a species doesn't weaken or break down or atrophy as the years go by, it just keeps its youthful good looks but then one day dies, it opens the possibility to see the two things, aging and death, as separate. And these species are out there. The immortal jellyfish, the hydra, the nearly non-aging lobster. So even though death comes for us all, aging might be optional. For a lot of people, that's a difficult idea to accept, given that most of us think of the two concepts as inseparable. But Professor Sheristani suggests that the relationship between them can at least be altered. In evolutionary theories of aging, aging itself is nothing more than becoming maladapted to the environment that we're in. So if we were to live a lifestyle that we are more adapted to, you would expect uh, not to see the negative impacts of aging as much. In Professor Sheristani's lab, researchers have been working on extending the lifespan of fruit flies. Part of the research is focused on the correlation between reproduction and longer lifespans. So some of the experiments include delaying the fly's mating process or removing the reproductive organs completely. It's fascinating stuff. And while it may have profound implications for human aging someday, this isn't some immediate fix. It takes generations of flies, communally forced to shift their whole way of life. It's not exactly the type of thing that appeals to the tech billionaires going through a midlife crisis. Which may be why Professor Shiristani's research isn't making the big bucks. At least not the kind of money that's regularly poured into research concerned with extending life right now. The field of quick-fix aging and death research is one of the more antagonistic ones you'll see anywhere. It's full of public brawls on Twitter. Sorry, X. It's full of accusations of bunk science and unreproducible results. It's a space where academic tensions, usually hidden in conferences or dinner parties or tenure committee meetings, have tumbled out onto the street where everyone can watch. That's obviously not a great thing, but it does have some upsides. To solve a problem, you need interest in the problem. And if they are getting enthusiasm, then that is overall a good thing. I mean, sure, enthusiasm is great and all, 
But when you're talking about people making the claim that we're going to live for thousands of years, there's always going to be a pretty obvious follow-up question. Are we anywhere near it? You'll hear about it. But before you hear about it, some context. The somewhat bumpy audio you're about to hear is from another podcast, one about living longer. It features two guys who sound pretty similar, but definitely have very different opinions. This is the first guy, Aubrey. I'm Dr. Aubrey de Grey. My undergrad degree from Cambridge was in computer science. Since then, he's gotten a PhD in biology, and he's become a kind of spokesperson for modern-day biohacking, life extension, all that sort of stuff. All righty. Can I, can I jump in here? And this is Dr. Charles Brenner, a well-established biochemist. Charles and Aubrey are both heavily involved in anti-aging research, except that Aubrey is very much a cheerleader for the field, whereas Charles, maybe not so much. This is from the first and last time Charles and Aubrey publicly debated one another, back in May of 2022, on a show called Let's Talk Longevity. Okay, yeah, you're so, chomping at the bit there, so, Charles. Anyway, I interrupted Charles. You're out there telling people that, um, you know, you came up with the seven, you know, cause of aging 22 years ago, and the only reason why you, you didn't make more progress was money, and now you have all, all this money, and you're telling people it's a solved problem now, but you haven't done any of the things that you need to do to turn this into a viable project. Well, first of all, Charles, don't hype your position. I'm not saying anything about what we can do now. I'm saying we have a 50-50 chance of getting to longevity escape velocity 15 years from now. Okay, so what do you think those therapies are going to be? Since since they're 15 years away, you've got to have something in in a trial now. Wait, 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 before that, Aubrey, I'm glad that both of you are having something here. Fun is one way to put it. Hi. Hey, nice to meet you. Good morning. Who is this? This is Dixie. Hey, Dixie. We were curious how things got so contentious. So we sent one of our producers, Emil Klein, to meet with Charles Brenner, one of the folks you just heard in the debate, the more skeptical one. Real scientific progress depends upon um, developing hypotheses and then testing them. And then we have to live with the results. And there's, there are certain people that are very influential in the aging field that just basically make pronouncements that are very appealing to the general public and are unwilling to live with the actual facts that their theories have long ago been falsified. Charles moved to California a few years back to serve as chair of the Department of Diabetes and Cancer Metabolism at the Beckman Research Institute. I work on uh, NAD, which is the central catalyst of metabolism. And believe it or not, you need high-energy electrons to run your cells. And the main carrier of those high-energy electrons are what are called NAD coenzymes. In the world of anti-aging research, Charles is most well-known for two things. The first is his work on NAD coenzymes, which are used in basically every one of your body's vital processes. The second thing he's known for is being involved in some of the most vocal disputes in the field. Disputes rife with accusations of misrepresented data, corruption, and outright scams. At the heart of it all is a fight over whether certain anti-aging studies are wildly overhyped. Now, to be clear, Brennan's most public quarrel isn't with Aubrey de Grey, but with the whole notion that we can eliminate aging right now. 
His main antagonist is a Harvard genetics professor named David Sinclair, who's perhaps the most well-known name in anti-aging research. What are the big breakthroughs that have to happen to go from, let's say, people living into their 90s to people living into their 150s? Here's Sinclair being interviewed by an entrepreneur named Aaron Hoffman. Well, they're happening in real time, actually. Uh, every week there's another breakthrough uh, in aging research. We've got the discovery that there's a backup copy of youth in every cell in the body that can be tapped into. Uh, we're curing my lab and companies that I've started and others that are competing with mine are showing that, that it's not that difficult to reverse the age of an animal. I would say that the Wright brothers are flying already. Do we have commercial air flight? Do we have a Concorde yet? No, but we know it's possible to fly. Professor Sinclair, who declined an invite to be on this show, is the author of many papers on various methods of slowing down the aging process. Recently, he described his findings in one of those papers as offering the potential to reverse aging with a single pill. It was a claim that captured the attention of a lot of people, but Charles wasn't particularly convinced there was any basis to it. In fact, Brenner's felt that way about Sinclair's work for a long time, and we're not talking about criticism from a distance here. These two guys, they're well acquainted. I've known David for almost 20 years. Um, when David was a junior faculty member um, at Harvard, he invited me to be on the scientific advisory board of Sertris. Sertris was Sinclair's pharmaceutical company. Its biggest claim to fame was a protein called Cert1, which the company claimed had life-extending potential. It was big news in the longevity community. And um, you know, I became pretty uncomfortable with the nature of the scientific claims being made by David and, and others from that experience. More or less promoting the idea that their findings would soon be applicable to humans. Um, they were able to sell Sertris to GSK, famously, for $720 million. That's a high price, even for a multi-billion dollar pharma company like GSK. GSK didn't really do diligence on the molecules that they were buying. The idea of the CERT-1 target being a longevity molecule has been debunked. So, um, you know, I read his book, I reviewed his book and described it as an influential source of misinformation. Um, I doubt that he likes that very much. Now, anyone who spent any time in academia knows feuds like this aren't exactly a rare occurrence. I mean, chances are the two poets in your local college's creative writing department feel the same way about each other's work. But there are two pretty big differences here. The first is the kind of money involved. Literally billions of dollars potentially up for grabs for any researcher, company, institution that can make a convincing claim to being on the verge of extending lifespans into the hundreds or thousands of years. And it's worth noting here that Charles may not be a cheerleader for quick-fix anti-aging claims, but he isn't exactly a passive observer either. What's his secret? My workout buddy told me about you, Nigel. He gave me some literature I read He's a scientific advisor for Chromadex, a company that sells supplements based on some of his anti-aging research. He's kicking butt at age 50. Stay energized. What maybe separates him from DeGray or Sinclair or the cryonics insurance salesman of the world is that he doesn't tout any ideas of selling something close to everlasting life or a total end to aging. Oh, I'd be very fortunate to, you know, to, to live to 100. 
because you're sitting in my house, you see the marathon posters. That's my wife, the marathoner. And there's a very active dog that I have to chase around, right? So I, you know, I'm a pretty, pretty active person. But no, I think one would have to have a a faith-based model and not an evidence-based model to think that you're you're going to outlive your gene set. And we, we think that our, our gene set doesn't really go beyond 120. Problem is, it's real tempting to imagine the possibility that it does go beyond 120. Way beyond. And that's the other thing that makes all of this so captivating to the general public. The notion that maybe we're just around the corner from 5,000-year lifespans. After the break, we follow that train of thought. What if we really are headed towards a world where people live into their thousands? If we escape aging, what new issues are born? Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. If we're driving towards a world of extended life, who's watching the road? Cryogenesis don't assume to know the path. They're sleeping through the ride, hoping to wake up in a better future. Meanwhile, people like Sinclair and his techie investors, they are razor-focused on the present trying to extend the ride as much as possible, rather than thinking about where they're going. So who's actually considering what the future looks like? Well, John Davis is. It's kind of his job. He's a philosopher, a professor at Cal State Fullerton, the same school where Parvin Sharistani is busy researching fruit flies. He's the author of The New Malthusians, The Ethics of Life Extension. Except Davis's book isn't really philosophy, or even about ethics per se. It's more of a cautious but positive imagining of what life would look like were there an option to live into your thousands. Would you describe yourself as pro-sort of indefinite aging? Are you a, a supporter of that concept generally? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I think it will produce something I like to call the new human condition. And the new human condition, in my view, has uh, four features. Feature one, life extension is not immortality. Immortality is when it's impossible for you to die. This is not going to be like that. You can be walking out of the life extension clinic with, you know, your aging completely halted and get hit by a bus while crossing the street, right? Anything can go wrong. It just won't be related to aging. Features two and three. If we don't age, our perception of time will change a lot. Your lifespan will be indefinite and unpredictable. On the upside, Davis thinks people wouldn't be scared of death. And finally, a fourth feature of this, all of this is going to be elective. In other words, you don't have to have extended life if you don't want it. This sounds like a familiar argument. It's basically life extension meets the free market. I mean, sure, nobody's forcing you to opt into this, 
You could just choose to live a tiny fraction of how long other folks are living. Though, that choice might be made for you by your bank account. It's it's a totally new relationship with death, right? I I think it's going to be one of the three or four or five biggest changes um, to human life that we've ever seen. It's right up there with the development of, of language and writing, science and technology, agriculture, cities. It's one of the big half dozen changes in the human condition. During our interview, John doesn't strike me as a complete booster of the idea of indefinite aging, at least not in the same way that some of the most rabid fans of stuff like cryonics tend to be, for example. He's just, well, he's really optimistic about some of the things that'll need to happen in order for a world where people live into their thousands to be a functional one, let alone a just one. But why would he think humans would be any better at dealing with way longer lives than we've been about wealth distribution, the environment, or really any other aspect of human existence? It's hard to deny that a world where some people have access to extended life and others don't is a massively unattractive world, morally and in every other way. That's not to be disputed. But sometimes when people talk about life extension, they make the argument that we ought not to have it because there will be injustice. Now, I draw the line there. I think the the question is not whether uh, a world of haves and have-nots when it comes to life um, is a bad world. It is. The question is, what's the best thing to do about it? In his book, John offers up two options. One is you can try to achieve equality by making sure nobody has it. Two, you can try to achieve equality by making sure everybody has it. And I'm fairly optimistic that if life extension consists of things like drugs and stem cells and genetic engineering, it will eventually be possible to provide it to everybody. I mean, that sounds like a pretty hard sell, but what do I know? I'm not a philosopher. So I think that's the main thing a philosopher brings. But Nick is. I mean, by the way, when you said that you start from a position of great ignorance, actually being aware of that, I mean, you follow in the footsteps of Plato's Socrates, who said, well, what the only thing I know is that I know nothing. And that's, I think, the best position. When you're talking about an uncertain future... Beware those who claim to know. They're usually selling you something that you don't want. After reading John Davis's book, The New Malthusians, we looked up some reviews. People on Amazon, Goodreads, they seemed to like it. But the only academic review we found didn't seem so convinced. It's a good book. I mean, I disagree with probably almost everything it says. And he's earned the right to disagree. Nick Agar is a professor of philosophy and ethics at Carnegie Mellon University's Australia campus. Nick's written multiple books contemplating the issues around longevity and technology, and when he first started writing about these issues 20 years ago, it was in the same vein as Davis. But Nick's had two decades to think on the matter, and he's come to see the anti-aging market grow to cater predominantly to an audience with one thing in common. They have lots of money to spend. When radical life extension becomes a little mini plot element in a succession episode, you know that something's happening there. And it's kind of like, well, if I really have immense wealth, why not a side bet on, on this? And a side bet for these people is a lot of money. It's like you've got to sort of, in a way, understand the predicament of the modern billionaire. What are you going to fucking buy? One thing Nick worries about billionaires buying isn't just life extension technology, but the whole dialogue around it. John's mostly positive book, The New Malthusians, is partially funded by groups who also invest in anti-aging research. 
In the book's acknowledgement section, John thanks the Templeton Foundation's Immortality Project for funding his time away from teaching. Nick, on the other hand, he's really got no stake in the game. At least not yet. You've never had one of these companies show up and be like, hey, we could make life a lot easier for you if you'd be our reformed skeptic? Yes, yes, yes. It's almost like, yes, uh, you know, you sort of say, please don't assume, I'm a philosopher, I take my philosophy seriously, but can you know, don't assume that I'm incorruptible. You better at least try to corrupt me. <laughs> I can't help but ask Nick, so what? What's the harm in a bunch of folks offering up the glimmer of a solution, no matter how faint? I mean, what's the worst that could happen? We're all going to die anyway. Well, by way of an answer, he points to something probably all of us have seen before. The medical study or research paper that by the time the PR people are through hyping it, is said to all but cure cancer. And how many of those have actually produced a breakthrough treatment for cancer? I I suspect the hit rate's low. (laughs) So it's not really about hope or enthusiasm. It's about the chasm between the science being done and the story being sold. Both Nick and John are, in their own ways, storytellers. And they're telling very different stories about the same subject. In John's story, the end of aging as we know it is a good thing. But in Nick's view, this positive outlook on how long we can keep living is something else entirely. A sales pitch targeted at our most existential insecurity. Yes, I mean, I've I've gotten older, my hair fell out. and, And do I enjoy that aspect of aging? Maybe it's a rejection of that. If someone comes along and says, well, here's something that's much more wonderful, all you've got to do is suspend disbelief for a while, and you can have it, and and pay money. Right, and potentially enter the free market to sell the dream at a monthly rate, be it in the form of a pill, or a health app, or cryonics life insurance. It's a kind of, it's our, our age's version of hope, isn't it? Well, I've been told I'm dying. I'm about to die, maybe. But, I mean, maybe what I'm going to experience is I'll just open my eyes and there'll be this bizarre futuristic environment and they'll say, Professor Egg, we've just brought you back. Um, and, by the way, we excise that tumour. I mean, it's, it's quite a nice thought. You, you take your final breaths and someone says, I'll see you in a bit. Among all the people we spoke to for this episode, I'd have thought that Parveen, the evolutionary biologist at Cal State Fullerton, would be the most skeptical of the hype and money in her field, all of it focused on present-day extension of life. But surprisingly, she's not. The overall enthusiasm for the field of aging is a positive. Without enthusiasm, it's really hard to move a scientific field forward. In other words, at least in some ways... The whole field benefits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rising tide. By the time this episode is released, it'll have been a few months since we did most of these interviews. And I mean, who knows? Maybe there will have been some massive world-rearranging discovery, one that turns 5,000-year lifespans into something that's really plausible. And that's sort of the problem. Who wants to be the one to say that most of this cheating death stuff is pure fantasy? Who wants to say that, and then the next day, someone makes a pill, 
and all of a sudden we're living for millennia. But here's something we do know. We know that you're probably going to live longer if your occupation is hedge fund manager from New England than if it's, say, sulfur miner from Indonesia. If you live where there's clean water, not downriver from a chemical plant. And in that way, there's all kinds of things we could do as a society right now to increase lifespans. Not just in years, but in quality too. And even if we're talking about scientific research, there's some slow, painstaking work out there that has real long-term potential. Problem is, none of these things are nearly as sexy as gene editing or long-term freezing or a pill that buys you a few centuries. And so here we are, waiting on the next big thing, whenever that might be. Without is a production of Hyperobject Industries and Sony Music Entertainment. It's written and hosted by me, Omar el It's executive produced by Claire Slaughter and Harry Nelson. This episode is produced by Emil Klein, with editorial assistance from Abby Fentress Swanson. Our associate producers are Fendel Fulton and Kendra Hanna, with production support from Zaley Mahone. Our theme music, sound design, and mixing is by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. And research is by Sarah Mathis. And thanks to the folks at Let's Talk Longevity for letting us use a clip from their show. See you next week. I was intrigued with the disclosure saying I, I give up all rights universally throughout the entire universe. So if we're beings of light at some future, uh, whatever I say is all yours. <laughs> I can live with that. We have slightly more listeners on this planet, but but not by much. Hey, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>